This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. I can hardly believe this myself. After five incredible years of mouthwatering adventures, heartwarming interviews, and countless, I mean countless, kitchen confessions, the Kitchen Confession podcast is reaching its final course. It's been an amazing journey. I mean, exploring the world of food with the most exciting and talented people in the culinary scene, swapping unforgettable stories, sharing valuable kitchen wisdom. I mean, food has this magical way of touching people's lives, and we've cherished every moment of bringing those experiences to you, our wonderful audience. So as we approach the last few episodes, get ready to take a flavorful trip down memory lane revealing some of the most unforgettable and delicious moments from the show. So let's raise our forks and toast to the grand finale of the Kitchen Confession podcast. (laughs) It's going to be one unforgettable feast. Summer is here and it's sizzling like a hot grill at a backyard BBQ. Get ready for the ultimate foodie fiesta as we dive headfirst into the magic of this sunny season on Kitchen Confession. From mouth-watering food festivals to our wildest gardening adventures, we're harvesting the best of summer's bounty. Was that the sound of two glasses clinking? (laughs) Oh, you betcha. Time to raise a glass and let the good times flow. Cheers. We've been chatting with some taste experts to learn more about developing our palates. Today, we're talking to Mitchell Stern of Station Cold Brew Coffee. Iced coffee is more often than not brewed hot and then chilled in some fashion. You know, you could brew it hot and put it in the, in the fridge in a pitcher or, you know, an iced Americano, for example, is a shot of espresso over ice filled with cold water. And then what happens is uh, the, f- the flavor profiles become very bitter. Um, and, you know, if you're looking for bitter coffee, fine. But for most people, um, that's why most iced coffee beverages, if you go into, you know, a, a coffee shop, mm-hmm. I won't name names, but if you go into a couple of those big coffee shops, You'll see most of their iced coffee beverages have all sorts of syrups and sweeteners um, and and flavors. And the reason oftentimes, more often than not, is to mask the bitterness that comes with the iced coffee. And that's where cold brew really, really wins. Well, and I get that because growing up, that's what we did. We had the espresso. We would brew that hot stovetop and then chill it. Yes. I say brewed cold, served cold. Um, That being said, we do brew it uh, into a concentrate, which we also bottle and package and sell. Um, And what you can do with the concentrate is you can actually mix it with boiling water. So the concentrate is meant to be diluted uh, in whatever way you want. You can mix it with cold water to make cold brew, uh, like an iced coffee type thing. You can mix it with milk and you can make like a cold brew latte. You can use it in baking Mm -hmm. or cocktails, but you can also mix it with boiling water and it becomes sort of this Americano style um, hot beverage that I oftentimes use uh, throughout the winter, uh, but it still holds all the incredible properties uh, that cold brew has, and that's the low acidity, low bitterness. It's a really smooth, easy drinking cup of coffee, and that's why we love cold brew so much. What other flavors are you guys working on or have launched? Um, we, so we currently have our original, which we call a New Orleans style. It's black unsweetened. We add roasted chicory root to it, which makes it mm-hmm. New Orleans style. That sounds good. Yeah. And then we have the organic vanilla, mocha, and coconut. Uh, so that's our lineup right now. Uh, we are playing around with some other stuff. We're playing around with actually an iced tea. So um, 
it sounds like that's way out of our out of our wheelhouse. However, uh, the iced tea is actually made from something called cascara, which is the skin or the casing around the coffee. Uh, when it grows. I've heard of this. Yeah. Starbucks has done some stuff with cascara, but what we're doing with it is very different. We've essentially taken the dried leaves or skin around the coffee bean and turned it into a sparkling iced tea. Uh, So that's something we're playing around with. Um, We are discussing opportunities to make plant-based lattes. So using our concentrate to then mix with, you know, an almond, a coconut or an oat milk base and create some lattes. Uh, we've got we've got a tremendous amount of stuff that we're working on. Um, uh, some aforementioned, and some that I won't mention. Right. Um, but really, really exciting stuff happening. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, people are looking for better for you beverages. You think about uh, cold brew coffee, kombucha, coconut water, cold pressed juice, uh, sparkling water is a huge trend now. All of these things are products consumers are looking for, and our product fits perfectly in that because more often than not. I talk to somebody and they say, oh, I need, I need milk or sugar for my coffee. And I say, just, just try our cold brew and then let me know. And I would say 70% of those people will say, oh, you know what? I actually don't have to add anything to this. So then you're drinking something that we, ca- we call clean caffeine. Beverly Crandon. She's a sommelier and founder of the Spice Food and Wine Group. So we talked about what the common... Everyone knows the, I guess, common rules of what wine pairs with what. What are the main pairing principles that we should consider when selecting a wine? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I always let the meal direct me in terms of where I'm going to go with wine. And that's how it all starts. So I look at the weight of the dish. You know, is it uh, a lot of creamy sauces in there? Is the the food fried? Um, For fried foods, I want really good acidity because acidity... Uh, in addition to adding more texture on the palate, it also helps to break down the weight of something being fried. Um, so that dough feels like butter and velvety in your mouth. Um, that fried skin on the chicken kind of breaks down a little bit, but you're still getting all the flavors from the spices that are used uh, yeah. to fry it. Okay. And then in terms of weight, uh, if something's got like a really creamy sauce, and I'm going with a wine that's got some body and weight as well. Um, okay. So I'm going to pick a white wine that's probably got some... Uh, leaves aging or seeing some time in oak as well because that gives it that gives the wine a bit of weight on the palate and then I also uh, will look at what kind of sauces are being used a lot of times people take their lead from the protein and they'll say oh you know um, I'm having uh, salmon it's fish and people say oh with fish you drink white wine but I'm like well is there a sauce on that salmon what's the cut of the salmon uh, is it black and is it cake? Like you you need to know all those things. Because when I make salmon, I'm pairing it with a red wine. I'm pairing it with a chinon. Because I know a chinon is a light enough red wine so it can work with the salmon, but it's red, so it's got some tannins and it's got some great acidity to cut through the fat in the salmon. So also understanding, you know, how, what kind of, what how the protein was prepared is also really important. Um where people have challenges, and even myself, uh, is pairing wine with sweet things. So the rule there, and it still is a rule that is safe, is you want a wine that is sweeter than the dish that you're having. If you have something that's not sweeter, uh, the wine will, will taste off and flat um, and just not a good mouth experience. Um, but I guess it's really just taking the, the rules from what's happening on your plate, and then you kind of source your wine. 
Today we're going to chat with taste expert Lance Johnson. Today we're talking about beer and brewing your own beer. What is it about beer um, that you love so much that that made you want to get into brewing your own? Beer is like art. And, you know, if you think of in a gallery, there's this beautiful thing hanging on the wall. In beer, the malt is like the canvas. The hops are like the paint. The yeast is like the lights in the gallery shining on this artwork. And all these items come together to create this most magical experience when you're standing there experiencing the art under all these conditions. It's the same as when you raise that glass to your mouth and drink your beer. Mm -hmm. It's just there's so much potential and so many places you can take it. It's just magic. Do you grow your own hops? I did this year, and I just packaged a beer a week ago that I brewed. I literally started brewing while the mash was mashing. I picked the hops off my hop vines and then threw them in the boil 20 minutes later. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Let's backtrack. Hops are on hop vines. Yeah. So it's a plant. Yes, it's a big gnarly plant that would try and take over your whole garden if you gave it the opportunity. Oh, so it's like a weed. If you're lucky, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there is obviously um, a little TLC that goes into it to actually grow your hop plant. Well, in my case, I'm not very good at TLCing anything. <laughs> so, you know, friends came over and said, How are your hops going to grow in that disaster? And I'm like, Honey, Anything around here needs to learn to fend for itself. <laughs> and uh, under that, whatever, my, my hops did grow. They generally take a few years to establish a good root structure. So getting a, a hops plant, is it something that you walk into like your local plant world and say, hey, can I get a hops plant? Is that is that such a thing or is it a specific gardens or you do kind of know a friend who gives you a little leaf or something? <laughs> That would own. be cool. And that <laughs> will come to be more. And there may be a day that you can walk into a store in a regular garden center and buy a hop. But yeah. in today's world, you typically pre-order them through your home brew shop. Oh. And they come as a rhizome and wrapped in a paper towel and a plastic bag. Okay. So the idea is in about January, you put in your order. And then around April, May, they ring you up and say, your hops are in, sir. And then you go pick up this little bag and ideally stick it in the ground straight away. And is this an all year round plant or no? It's a perennial. So okay. once you bother to spend the $9 to buy it, mm -hmm. you are then in hops for the rest of your life, hopefully. <laughs> Perfect. Does it change the flavor? Absolutely. Yeah. Part of the magic of beer, like when you said about brewing wine, the primary thing that makes wine delicious is the quality of the grape juice you start with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where with beer, the primary thing that makes beer delicious is the quality and variety of malt, the variety of hops, and the style of yeast, and the quality of water. So you get like these four parameters that you can adjust versus with wine. There's technically 
one major one and there's always like fermentation temperature and all these other smaller less important things that have a fairly major impact but it's all about the ingredients and with beer there's three or four if you count water is an adjustable ingredient so depending on the hops you use can change a beer entirely i'm mary mamaliti and you're listening to the kitchen confession podcast Today, we look back at five years of the podcast as we revisit the best of summer from Kitchen Confession. Put on those gardening gloves and get ready to soak up the coolest summer gardening tips from our expert guests. Farmer Lee Jones. He has cooked with Julia Child, dined with Martha Stewart, provided veggies to the top chefs in the world, and was the first farmer to win a James Beard Award. He's an expert in sustainable farming, innovative planting, and harvesting techniques and the author of The Chef's Garden. It's a modern guide to common and unusual vegetables, along with recipes. Well, we talked a little bit and we touched a little bit on flavors and packing flavors. And when we're talking about things like pickled fried green tomato chips, grilled baby eggplant with romescu sauce, um, sweet pea custard and wasabi creamed peas, this book certainly, it does bust the myth that vegetables are just a side dish. But commercial grocery chains, they don't exactly stock a lot of the things like oyster leaves, let's say. Where can people find some of the more niche ingredients? And besides Ohio, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I mean, in the last 60 years, we have a 3,000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, and allergies. It's not sustainable. How did we get to that point? because we were producing for tons per acre rather than the quality of the product. Number one, you can grow it. There are tips in there for growing. If you have a garden, I would challenge you, encourage you, invite you to have your garden. And if you have children, kids want to emulate what mom and dad are doing. And so if you are doing a garden, the kids are going to grow a garden. You can grow some of this stuff right in your own garden. I would encourage you to build relationships with the farmer's markets and Tell them what you're looking for. Share those things. Um, And and obviously, look for them wherever you can find them. And, you know, we go in a grocery store. How many hundreds of times have we walked by the celery root or the salsa fee or something that just looks strange and mom never cooked it? I don't know what to do with it. Buy it. I challenge you to buy it and bring it home and play. And this book will inspire you to not let these things intimidate you. Bring them home and play with them and have some fun. And that's what it's all about. And what about recipes? Is there a signature recipe of yours that you can share with our listeners? Something that you go to all the time? You know, people a lot of times ask me, what's your favorite vegetable? And it really depends. I always ask back, what season is it? Right now, my go-to recipe in this book has to be Mr. Fry's rhubarb. Mr. Fry was the best grower in our county. And he always had the best variety of rhubarb. And when he died, he willed his rhubarb stock to us. And the only way we ever sell the rhubarb is is Mr. Fry's rhubarb as an ode to him. But there's a kumbacha poached Mr. Fry's rhubarb with ricotta and mint. And that's my go-to today. Frank Ferragini, otherwise known as Frankie Flowers. He's an award-winning horticulturalist, best-selling author, and our favorite weatherman. 
container gardens, balcony gardening, and endless land to build the garden of your dreams. Space doesn't really matter when it comes to gardening. It's what you do with that space that counts. So if we're talking about in the city here, I do all my gardening. I actually built um, a raised garden bed, but it's actually more like a container. It's a long wooden garden bed. Um, how can we make the most out of a small space? So the key is, is to start small and then expand out. You know, okay. a lot of times people are like, I'm going to do it for the first year. and I'm going to do a 20 by 40 vegetable garden. Well, wow, that's a ton of work. I would recommend for somebody that's starting out from the beginning, you even start some food in containers, uh, a raised bed like the one you're describing, but even just four by eight. If you want to build a garden, like a four by eight's a beautiful size, and you can get good yield of food out of that for your for your family as well. Once again, it's all about light. So depending upon the type of light is really determines on what you can grow. Food growing gardens need lots of light. Focus on the soil. So making sure that you have a good quality soil will benefit you to have a good garden. So raised bed, the benefit of a raised bed is, is you usually are putting good soil in. A raised bed, the soil will warm faster than in the garden. And a raised bed is also good because you don't have to bend down as much to do weeding. And also it will be a little, little less weedy overall. And then when you're designing your garden and doing a garden layout, there's certain things I wouldn't grow. Corn really attracts rodents and attracts raccoons. And, you know, I wouldn't really, I would grow potatoes just for fun, but I wouldn't really, they're, they're usually so inexpensive. Potatoes generally get a lot of disease. So I would maybe stay away from potatoes. Cilantro, if you're a first-time gardener, cilantro will be great in the spring and then it'll burn out because it just doesn't like the heat. So you have to sow multiple crops. Ones I would grow, Swiss chard is fantastic. Swiss chard, you, it grows, you cut it, and then it comes back again. It grows, you cut it, it comes back again. So you get all these crops, super easy. And I think Swiss chard is an underrated vegetable, full of nutrition, fantastic. I would grow tomatoes for sure. Tomatoes, you get lots of yields. Uh, a, a really good variety of tomato for first-time gardeners, one that's called early girl, and it's an early girl bush. Uh, it's a shorter variety, that's why it's a bush form. Uh, it has a mid-sized fruit. It's the one of the first to harvest. That's a really good one. I planted that one last year. That was the first time I planted that one. And loved did it. you do well? Yeah, great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, loved it. How about cherry tomatoes? Cherry tomatoes, there's so many. So there's one new variety that's called, well, it's fairly new, but the last five years, it's called Sugar Snack. It has the highest percentage of sweetness in a cherry oh, tomato. That sounds so good. So if you're looking for that, that's great. And I was just thinking there's a lot of grape tomatoes as well, like the grape cherry mm -hmm. tomatoes. They grow in clusters. They're fantastic. If you want a small plant that doesn't get that big, like not viney, is one that's called Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim is a more bush form, a mid-sized fruit. And what's really becoming popular too are the yellow cherry tomatoes because they're low in acid. I love cherry tomatoes. I love planting them. It's just because it's like nature's candy. Candy. Like, yeah, it yeah. is. And because we have a small yard, I'll walk by, we'll grab some and just snack on them while we're out there. And then I've also planted in a container as well, uh, strawberry plants right at my back door. So every time we walk in and out the back door, we're grabbing one and, <laughs> and snacking on it. But that's a great way to get kids to eat better. So when the studies have shown as well that when you grow food like that and kids can actually go out and just grab and pick, they start to eat more vegetables. They start to eat more fruit. They start to see where food comes from. They start to value food. So to me, you know, growing your own food is really not about saving money. It's about the experience and it's about the lessons that we can learn and kids can learn. And I want to bring up, this is something that I grew up with and I saw it everywhere. Um, and surprisingly still see it today. Can you plant vegetable gardens in your front yard? 
Oh yeah. So there's there's something called it's called potager. So the pottage garden. Potager in French means soup. And and what's soup? Soup is a mix of everything, right? So there's no rules where we can't plant vegetables and flowers together. So in the front yard, we could actually like eggplant. If you look at eggplant, that's like a sexy looking plant. It has this really cool felty kind of foliage. It has this purple bloom and then it has this black fruit. So pretty. Yeah, and you can get a variety called little fingers that are more like cylinders. They're they're really quite nice. And if you underplant it with some purple flowers, like a purple trailing calabricola, which is a million bells, look, you know, you have a really nice looking container. You know, nasturtiums, that's an edible flower that you can intermingle. And yeah, you can put vegetables in the front yard. And now it's becoming on trend. Uh, and many urban places, people are repurposing their their little plot of land and planting vegetables. And there's even lots now that are sharing. So what they're doing is they're planting and then they're they're sharing it to people that are needing food. There's no rules in gardening. Your neighbors always will have an opinion. And don't worry, your neighbors will always have an opinion. We're turning up the heat and flipping those patties with pizzazz. Serving up some juicy tips, finger licking recipes, and a whole lot of barbecue banter. So fire up those grills, put on your aprons, and let's get this grill party started. That's John Grimes. He's an advocate with meningitis organizations, the host of Ambiguously Blind podcast, and a fellow foodie with a passion for the grill. Really, a lot of it's in the gear and uh, mostly the knowledge. So it's definitely very easy for someone with little or no sight whatsoever to grill. Um, But it's just like everything else. You know, Mary, people... um, with visual impairments, whatever they are on the spectrum, they can do just about the same thing as everybody else. We just may go at it at a different, we, we may arrive a different way, right? We may take a different approach to doing those things. So for me, the combination, I uh, it can work for with a lot of different grills, but I have a big green egg that I got from the blind grilling experience. And there's some adaptive equipment. Um, it's, it's funny too, Mary, because oftentimes I find the most interesting adaptive equipment are things that, and especially in the technology world, we're meant for the masses. We're meant to make things easier for lots of people. And in turn, they make things super easy for people with sight like myself. You know, the digital assistants are a good example of that, where you can just speak commands to something uh, to get information. And in the grilling and smoking world, uh, there are several devices that do this, but the device I use is called the Flame Boss. And what the Flame Boss does is it hooks to my big green egg or lots of other grills that works with too. And it helps me control the temperature of the, of the pit. And I know the, the, the meat, what's going on with the meat or the things I'm grilling. I can, I can modify it if I want. It gives me all the temperatures and times and all these, all this information that most sighted people would just may not even really need to know, but could know if they want. So, so I'm going to throw some grocery items at you and I want you to tell me how would you grill this? Because I find it a little challenging. Hot dogs. Okay. Those little guys, they uh, roll around yeah. everywhere. This is great, Mary. I got a solution for you. Okay. So hot dogs, brats, anything like that, right? You get a skewer, like a, you know, a skewer. I, mm-hmm. I, like a, I use a metal one so you can reuse it or just a bamboo skewer. And yep. you just put a skewer through, I can fit, I usually cook a lot of brats. And so we cook um, five at a time and I can, I squeeze the skewer through the end of the brat. Um, that's, how do I describe that? Um, yeah. Like through, yeah. So it's like you end. go through the center. Oh, you go through yeah. the end? Yes. So like if you were to oh. hold it up, it looks like a flag, like you're holding the Canadian yeah. flag, right? So it's kind of like I a like flag. That. Thank you for yeah. saying that, the Canadian right. flag. So it's like a flag, <laughs> but you don't 
you don't want to hold it like that because they'll fall off. But you right. put them on there and then you put them on the grill and then you flip um, five at a time, like with one motion. And that I just get so in there. Smart. I just get in there with my hands. I have gloves that, um, you know, would it would probably be easier if I could use a tongs or something. But I need the I need to feel it. So I have some gloves that I can get on the grill and not burn myself. And I grab each end of that thing. I flip it over, close the lid. Mm-hmm. And we're back to cooking. Okay, so two things already you mentioned that I would put in a grill toolkit would be the hot the gloves, heat protectant gloves. Yes. Skewers. Yes. Now what about chicken wings? Chicken wings, you're gonna I always use, thought yeah. like a vegetable so basket. They're well, let me let me talk about a basket. Let me kind of okay. divert here a bit burgers, because that I do cook burgers in a basket. So oh, I have okay. a fish basket. Weber, the brand oh, makes a yes. fish basket which will hold uh, the, the place that I get burgers at. My, my kids love these little sliders. And mm-hmm. so I can fit 12 hamburger sliders in this fish basket. And so I always struggle with how am I going to flip burgers, right? Because I, I don't know if I flipped it. Did I flip yeah. it? Did it flip? Is it in the right place of the grill? Exactly. Am, am I going to burn my hand? I, I got to do this quick because this is getting uncomfortable kind of thing. But yeah. I put 12 of these things in a fish basket. I put it on. I set my timer because I know my temperature of my grill. I set my timer mm-hmm. for a certain period of time. I put them in. Timer goes off. I flip them. Set the timer. It's done. I mean, I can flip 12 burgers in 10 seconds. And oh, my gosh. That's brilliant. It's super easy. So the same thing I think would apply to chicken wings. It would just be probably because the wings might be a little bigger, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a slightly bigger basket, maybe a vegetable basket. Um, I've never done that, but that's that's would be my approach to that. I think the fish basket would work for that as well. Yeah, it would, I think. Clamp them in. Yeah. And just keep on flipping. That's it. Christine Ha, also known as The Blind Cook. She's a restaurateur, cookbook author, and the winner of season three MasterChef. A dish that I want to bring back when we move The Blind Goat into its own space and we're building out a bigger kitchen uh, a dish I want to bring back is actually um, called, we call it the Vietnamese pizza because it's kind of really the only way I can um, try to have, you know, non-Vietnamese people understand what it is. But in Vietnamese, it's called bánh chang nương, which bánh chang means rice paper and nương means grilled. And, and I discovered this food on a, uh, a trip to Vietnam when I was trying some modern Vietnamese food over there. And it's kind of like the younger generation uh, of cooks and chefs growing up and creating their own new Vietnamese dishes. And what it is, is taking rice paper, the kind that you would wrap around like spring rolls or summer rolls. And then you let you, you actually grill it and put toppings on top of it. And it becomes like this crispy, slightly chewy snack that you eat. Uh, And so we, you know, you can do different toppings on it. You know, we did pork belly on it. We want to try doing like baby clams on it, different herbs, different sauces, um, so that's actually something I want to bring back at the, when we move the restaurant into its new space. And what can I say to convince you to come and bring <laughs> the blind goat here to Toronto? Because that sounds incredibly delicious. Oh, man, oh I love gosh. Toronto. Toronto's got so much good food, too. I love it. You've got a second restaurant that you're working on, or you've opened up. Yes, we've opened up the second one. So the second one's called Xin Uh That means hello in Vietnamese. And that one's kind of a... I wanted it to be a neighborhood restaurant where the menu is also very indicative of my background, meaning, you know, Vietnamese um, 
back Vietnamese heritage growing up in Texas. So there we actually smoke our own Texas barbecues. So we do smoke beef ribs, smoke beef cheeks, smoke duck. And then we infuse that into our Vietnamese dishes. So we'll have like, uh, for example, uh, in Vietnamese it's called gai vit, which means duck salad. And it's like a cabbage based salad with a ginger fish sauce vinaigrette. It's got some roasted peanuts in there. And typically it's made with um, just braised uh, or poached duck, but we actually barbecue the duck. So it's got like um, the post oak, you know, smoky flavor of Texas barbecue duck. And then we serve that in the salad and we add like our own mix of like jackfruit, arugula. We still keep the ginger fish sauce vinaigrette traditional. Uh, We put like candied walnuts in it instead of your roasted peanuts. Um, So we kind of do like those kinds of fun fusions, I would say, of like Texas and Vietnamese food at Sinchel. It's that time we've reached the end of another show. Did we get your stomach growling? Head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchen confession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mamalini. Thanks for listening.